Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to Prophecy Today. We're in temporary studios out here in Nebraska. Actually, Plattsmouth, Nebraska is where we're located, and we're here because we're going to be in a four-day prophecy conference at the First Baptist Church of Plattsmouth. So glad to have the privilege and opportunity to join Pastor Raymond Wicks and his people for the study of God's prophetic word. What an unbelievable time in our history as we look at current events and how they fit into the prophetic scenario of God's word. Well, that's what we're going to be doing for the next 90 minutes. If you can give me those 90, we'd love to be able to present our broadcast partners to you. They'll give us reports on current events across this entire world that will help us understand how Bible prophecy is at that point of fulfillment. The first one we're going to go to, Ken Timmerman on the Catbird Seed in Washington, D.C. We talked with Ken about geopolitical activities, and I've got to ask you, first of all, Ken, I know we're going to get to one of the articles that you have written. We'll get to that in a moment. But Russia's Vladimir Putin unveiling an invincible nuclear weapon. Boy, we've got to talk to that issue. Was that a political ploy as he relates to his people in the upcoming presidential election? Or is that a real threat to the world? Uh, Well, it's a bit of both, Jimmy. Uh, This is a developmental weapon. It's a long-range standoff uh, nuclear cruise missile that uh, currently the United States does not have defenses against. This is a weapon that can be launched from aircraft over a thousand miles away from the United States. And Putin showed off a sort of cartoonish video where it was attacking Florida. So uh, this was not a, um, just an idle threat. Now, I've got to say, we've seen this coming for some time. Putin announced already in 2011 that Russia was going to be spending $650 billion over 10 years in new strategic weaponry. Not its defense budget, but the actual equipment budget. That's about 10 times what the United States spends in a year. So they would be really coming up to our level of spending, but it was just on nuclear weapons. So uh, nuclear rockets and warheads and cruise missiles like this one. So it's not yet out there and being deployed, but this is a long-term threat, and uh, the United States, I believe, needs to be developing missile defenses to counter this. Well, we were talking about the possibility this could have been used by Putin for the purpose of winning the election as president, and once again, they're in Russia. Any question as to whether he will be reelected? Uh, not at this point. And yes, of course, you're right. This is, this is a two-hour news conference that he gave. And since Putin controls the media in Russia, uh, clearly he's trying to use this to convince the Russian public, uh, which is very jingoistic, frankly, that he's the strong man, that he is in charge. And Russia's got all these great new weapons, when in fact, Russia is essentially a gas station with nuclear weapons. Uh, their greatest export these days is uh, oil and gas. No, it's very interesting. Also, of the presence of Russia there in Syria for a couple of years now, we've been reporting on that. Uh, But it seems to me, as you look at the Syrian situation, Russia has been using it as a military guinea pig for some of the items that uh, uh, they are displaying as threats to the rest of the world. Well, that's right. So Russia is a gas station with nuclear weapons. Its first export is oil and gas. Its second export is uh, weaponry. So they are deploying 
they're doing really their best to uh, test all of their newest weapons in uh, Syria so they can uh, market them around the world as, quote, battle-tested. And they say, well, the United States has been doing this in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're just doing what other powers do. Well, that, that is true. I mean, there's a certain truth to that. Uh, but they are, you know, really going out of their way to deploy cutting-edge weapons that have just barely gotten off the test bed to um, use on the ground in Syria. They got their latest fighter jets. They would like to test a stealth fighter that they believe can compete with the F-22 and the F-35 here in the United States. They've got a new generation surface-to-air missile uh, that can be used in a missile defense capability, the S-400. This is a generation ahead of what they've sent to Iran. So, yeah, they're, they're really big on testing their weapons in Syria. Uh, you know, the Nazis did this also in uh, the Spanish Civil War. And as I say, other power, the United States has done it as well. Speaking about Syria, let's uh, find out, is this report up to par, or is it just a guess that they might be considering United Nations report that links North Korea to Syria's chemical weapons program? Well, no, this is, this is for real, Jimmy, and it's a, uh, it's a very serious 200-page report by uh, a special investigative uh, committee at the United Nations, and it, it's not yet been released, but the results have been leaked out. And uh, essentially they have concluded, and they have material evidence apparently, that uh, North Korea has um, delivered chemical weapons. Uh, now, it's unclear at this point whether it's chemical weapons, finished chemical weapons in warheads, or whether it is chemical weapons precursors and equipment. My guess is it's the latter. Uh, Syria still has a very, very large chemical weapons production capability. They did not give that up in 2013 when they gave up their weapons and their precursor chemicals. So um, if they get deliveries of precursor chemicals, and of course North Korea produces them in large quantities, then it's very easy for Syria to reconstitute its stockpiles of sarin gas, which is clearly a weapon of mass destruction. A single you know, drop of it on the skin will kill somebody. Uh, and other uh, very deadly chemical weapons that Syria has used over 200 times on the battlefield. Ken, this last week you wrote an article, and we're going to post it today here at prophecytoday.com, my website. It's an article in Front Page Magazine. We cannot have a conversation without bringing to everybody's attention Iran. The title of your article, Deadly Threat from Iran. Elaborate on that for us. Well, this is, this is, again, telling the story of the former commander of the Revolutionary Guards Corps, Mohsen Razai, and his trip to North Korea in 1993. I learned about the trip uh, from his son, who was there with him in 93. The son defected to the United States, uh, lived in my basement for six months, uh, learning English, watching Jackie Chan movies and was later uh, awarded with uh, U.S. citizenship because of his services to the United States as a defector. At that point, he was the highest-ranking Iranian official here, or with access to secrets at the top of the military and intelligence hierarchy who had come to the United States. Since then, there had been other defectors. But at any rate, Ahmad uh, Razai told me the story about the trip to North Korea, where the North Korean leader uh, pro- pledged to Iran to help them with missing components from uh, nuclear artillery shells that they had been able to purchase on the black market 
in um, uh, Asia, probably from Kazakhstan or Tajikistan from the former Soviet stockpile. So when Mossad Rezai threatens to wipe Israel off the map, he knows what he's talking about. He used to be in charge of Iran's nuclear weapons program until he was forced out in 1997, and he still uh, is one of the top five leaders of the Iranian hierarchy. What's this word that we hear coming out of Lebanon that the prime minister who was many thought kidnapped and taken to Saudi Arabia was summoned this week to go to Saudi Arabia again before they came into the entire realm of what Iran is doing there in the Middle East? What do you know? Well, this is quite a story. You mentioned that he had been kidnapped earlier or or reputedly kidnapped by the Saudi leadership when he was going to resign. Uh, Now, Saad Hariri, who, let's not forget, whose father was murdered, was assassinated, his convoy blown up by Iranian agents in Beirut on Valentine's Day 2005. Uh, Saad Hariri now, who has been the staunchest enemy of Hezbollah and uh, the Iranians because of that story with his father, now we're being told that he has switched his allegiances and is now going to support Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon because of the upcoming elections there. And he wants them to support him to continue on as prime minister. And he said in exchange for that, on May 8th, when they have these uh, general elections, uh, he will support them and their bid to uh, basically maintain their majority in the Lebanese parliament. Lebanon has become a province of Hezbollah, not Hezbollah being a party within Lebanon. And that is the dramatic strategic reality, which uh, is shocking to the Saudis. It's a threat to Israel and to the United States. And uh, I believe it's going to have really drastic consequences for the Lebanese people. Boy, it's very interesting to notice also in Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has made some very dramatic decisions, actually fired all the military leadership there in Saudi Arabia. What's happening? Well, first of all, they've done really a miserable job in Yemen. Uh, The Saudis are not winning the war in Yemen. They're massacring a lot of people with a kind of random, what really appears to be random airstrikes. There's no excuse for that. They've got high-tech weaponry. They ought to be able to do pinpoint strikes, but they're not. So that's the first thing. Mohammed bin Salman is kind of recognizing the reality on the ground. His generals have done a lousy job. Beyond that, though, it's, he's bringing in a new generation of leaders, and that is very significant. He wants to replace the old guard, so to speak, with people that he believes will be loyal to him. Will these new generation leaders be any better than the old guard? I don't know. I don't know any of them personally. Uh, One of them is the uh, current commander of the Saudi Royal Air Force, but he definitely wants to have a new generation of leaders in the military, people who are beholden to him as he gradually expands his power in the kingdom. We'll stay on top of this story with our good broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. I cannot ask him about an issue as it relates to world events that he is not able to respond to immediately. And be sure to read his article on my homepage, prophecytoday.com, Deadly Threat from Iran. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. Always an excellent job. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He's got a Middle East news update. It's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today.
How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As I promised, David Dolan standing by with his Middle East news update. David, let's get right underway. want to remind everybody that you have covered the Middle East for over three decades. You know what's going on. Now, I believe last week we just simply mentioned, because we got the news late on Friday, and we mentioned on our broadcast Uh, that the U.S. Embassy was going to be moved to Jerusalem. And on May the 14th, quite a unique day in the history of the Jewish nation of Israel. Let's rehearse that just a bit more. This is an amazing decision, a political decision by the President of the United States. And the day, May the 14th, very unique, is it not, David? It is. And in essence, it seems like President Trump has gone uh, back about halfway towards what he originally said, which is that, yes, we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, That's our sovereign decision to make, and we're going to do it. Nobody's going to stop it, but it's going to take several years. Well, I pointed out to you and your audience at the time that the new U.S. consulate, and Jimmy, have you been there? I'm not sure if you visited it. I've been by it, but I've not been inside like you have, David. Describe it for our listeners. Well, it's a fantastic, state-of-the-art U.S. embassy consulate. It's a consulate officially, but it's one of the largest consulates in the world. It's certainly one of the newest. Tens of millions of dollars were spent on it. It has a big conference room in it. It's got beautiful offices that look out over the Judean desert towards the Dead Sea, towards the east. It's got uh, one of its floors completely underground because it's on the side of a hill that was done deliberately. So it's bomb-proof. It's got nuclear shelters. It's all ready to go 
as an embassy, as I pointed out. It was just the political decision not to immediately move it to there. Again, it seemed like President Trump was testing the waters. Well, let's see what the reaction is just to the announcement that we're going to move it one day to Jerusalem. And, of course, there was a negative reaction, but it wasn't as bad. Some of us thought a whole new uprising might be starting. You and I talked about that. There was some evidence of that. It didn't get to that, and so far we haven't had any other uh, military strikes from Hezbollah or whatever. This is always possible in a minute, really. But So it, it looks like they looked at it again and said, hey, we can go ahead and do this earlier in our existing facilities. Now they are talking about building a new building next door to it that would be the official embassy, uh, but that, you know, in the meantime, they can use the existing building for some years, really. And um, and that's become clear. The president decided to do it, but to do it on the Gregorian date of Israel's creation 70 years ago, a recreation, rebirth in one day, as Isaiah said, uh, May 14, 1943, Eight, as Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv, just for the Sabbath, declared that Israel was back as a nation, and etc. Uh, that is remarkable, truly a sign of support for Israel that, that nobody really expected, and the Israelis are elated by it, although, as I mentioned uh, when we last spoke, there will be blowback for sure, and the Palestinians already consider May 14th. Every year they celebrate that, or not celebrate it, they mark it as al-Nakma, the disaster, the catastrophe Day and so they always have some activities this year. They're planning a lot of stuff, and of course, so are the Israelis. So you can imagine the security people are going to be very busy. And meanwhile, with all that good news about the embassy move to Jerusalem and the 70th celebration of the Jewish state of Israel, there is news coming out of the north. Israel is now preparing to go to war up there at its northern border. Give us some more information. Well, Jenny, there's been a late development that's very ominous indeed, and that is that the Lebanese Prime Minister, Hariri, now you'll remember that a couple months ago, three months ago, whatever it's been, four months, he was summoned to Saudi Arabia. There were charges he was being held against his will there by the Saudis. He's a Sunni Muslim, a supporter of the Saudis. He's a wealthy, his family, the Hariri family, his father was assassinated on Valentine's Day 2005. He was the former prime minister, assassinated by Hezbollah. He's been an enemy of Hezbollah. The Hariri family has been all along. Well, now he's announced that he's going to be siding with Hezbollah and backing Iran. He's changing sides. He sees which way the wind is blowing. He sees the power of Hezbollah. He sees the growing power of Iran and Russia, et cetera, in the area, and he is um, decided to change sides. Now, what practical effects that will have, we don't know, but it certainly means that the Lebanese army, under the control of the overall government, with the prime minister, again, being Hariri, a Sunni Muslim, they may now be ordered to join in any Hezbollah attack against Israel. So that adds a whole new dimension to the potential we also have, Jimmy, growing evidence that some of the refugees from Ghouta, um, east of Damascus, are making their way down to the Golan border and are hoping to come into Israel. Well, Israel just can't cope with tens of thousands of Syrian refugees right now coming into the Golan. So that's another late development that's uh, worrying them, but the region is extremely tense and there could could be trouble at any time. We've had more bellicose statements from Iran during the week. And, of course, we had uh, Vladimir Putin 
announcing that he's got these magnificent new nuclear weapons that can go around mountains and do all sorts of evasive tactics and underwater rockets as well and all these different things. Of course, doing this with an illustration at his Moscow speech showing these rockets hitting Washington and hitting the west coast of the United States, just like the North Koreans have been doing. So very ominous developments. The Israelis don't want to get into a war that involves Russia, certainly, but it's looking increasingly like a more bellicose Russia is also more on the war path and will fully probably back Hezbollah and Syria in any conflict with Israel. Additional information coming out of Moscow, Vladimir Putin making the statement to Israel, we'll protect you, we'll come to your aid if Iran attacks you. However, we're going to also protect the Iranians and allow them to stay in Syria. Now, that's a mixed message, is it not? Well, uh, basically, Putin has declared himself the new emperor of the Middle East. He's the new overall ruler. He has the final say. Everybody has to come through him. And I have to say, Jimmy, that's a pretty fair statement. The Israelis are acknowledging that. The Russian influence has just quadrupled in the past three years, basically since President Obama didn't respond to the Syrian use of chemical weapons, didn't follow through with his threat of military action. And then, of course, the Syrians invited the Russians in right after that. And now they really rule the roost, and they want to be seen as the protector of the million-plus Russian-speaking Jews that live in Israel. Many of them are, frankly, pro-Putin. They like Putin. They like what he's done for their former country. They think he's a strong leader, etc. And, of course, he's also backing Iran and Syria, etc. So he's trying to play all sides, but I think if Iran were to attack outright against Israel with no provocation, I think he probably would at least not participate in it. But if there's a buildup of things that Hezbollah gets involved, et cetera, and it gradually escalates, which is a more likely scenario, it's unpredictable what they would do because they've got a lot of forces uh, in, uh, in Syria and that area already. You know, it's very, very important that we keep a focus on Iran because they're one of the players in the alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel in the end times, according to the prophet Ezekiel. Well, now Iran has announced they're going to hold a festival. They've got an hourglass. They're going to look at it and celebrate how close it's coming to the total destruction of Israel. Boy, that's a prophetic scenario. And actually, it's being played out on the ground there in Iran, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Jimmy. And I think really, uh, for any of your listeners, uh, it's time to wake up. We've got uh, uh, the world's second largest nuclear power, you know, issuing films showing them destroying our cities on the east and west coast. We have North Korea doing the same. We have this alliance between those powers and Syria and the others. We have this report this week that North Korea has been supplying chemical weapons once again to Syria. That was a U.N. report, so not just hearsay. Very serious situation, Jimmy. We're heading towards a major showdown, and it's really time to be on our knees. And Iran saying we're going to be a part of that total destruction of the Jewish state of Israel. Quick answer, if you will, David. Talk to me about the announcement that Prince William of the United Kingdom is going to make a royal visit to Israel sometime the summer of 2018, most likely in the same time period of the celebration of the 70th anniversary of Israel. Yes, and this is very important because, of course, Britain played a 
very large role in the recreation of Israel, first a positive role in the initial years of the mandate and then towards the end a very negative role in uh, arming Israel's enemies, Jordan and others. Of course, Prince William is also going to visit several Arab countries in the area as well, so it's not an exclusive visit to Israel, but the timing is good and the Israelis are definitely welcoming it. And a part of the celebration for the 70th birthday of the Jewish State of Israel. David, thank you so very much. Great insight always. We bring you to this broadcast table because of your vast experience and understanding of the Middle East. Thank you, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Madad will join us. We want him to talk about Purim. First of all, this is the Jewish Holy Day that has just been completed two days in Israel. We'll explain why two days instead of one day when we bring to this broadcast table Winky Madad. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young. Thank you so very much for giving us 90 minutes every week that helps us to explain current events around the world in light of the ancient Jewish prophets who gave us a prophetic scenario for the end time. I'm here in temporary studios in Plattsmouth, Nebraska. Yes, from Oklahoma through Kansas into Nebraska. Well, I think this may well be one of the first times or just a couple of times we've been into Nebraska. Looking forward to having a great time with Pastor Raymond Wicks and all of his people at First Baptist Church here in Plattsmouth. Well, we're going to make our way now to Shiloh, center part of the state of Israel. It's one of those Jewish communities, are sometimes referred to as Jewish settlements, and our good friend, longtime broadcast partner, Winky Madad, joining us. Winky, you have just completed two days of Purim, a special Jewish holy day. Now, I remember that on Wednesday night, which would have been Thursday, of course, in Israel, the night and the day, uh, that Purim began. But why two days? I thought it was a one-day celebration. And Winky, as I understand it, it's one day in Jerusalem, two days around the rest of the country? Or what's the story there? Well, Jimmy, you've got a little bit wrong. I wanted a few times I can tell you that on the air. If you look at the Book of Esther, which is in the Bible, you will see that uh, there was a two-stage salvation from the decree of the king of Persia at that time, in which he gave in to Haman, 
and allowed him to try and plan an attack on the Jews of the kingdom at the time. And in defending themselves, which was one of the rewards that Esther, the queen, managed to uh, get out of her husband, the king, Ahasuerosh, in the Hebrew pronunciation, there was, as I said, two stages. One was outside the capital city of Shushan, and the other day, where the battle was fought and the defense was fought, was inside the capital, the biblical town of Shushan. So, in other words, the first day is the day it would be celebrated according to the Talmud, the commentaries on the Bible, all the cities that did not have walls at the time of Joshua. In other words, the city of Jerusalem that did celebrates it still in Israel on the second day of Purim. Here in Shiloh, where I live, since we have a doubt whether the wall that, in fact, you have seen down at the ancient Tel, the archaeological mound that we have here in Shiloh, if it existed or not in its completeness, we celebrate two days. But the rest of the country celebrates it on the first day, which would have been the Wednesday night Thursday here in Israel. And then Jerusalem celebrated it on the Thursday night and Friday before the Sabbath, in which everybody gets dressed up and there's re- reading of the Book of Esther and uh, other elements of the holiday. I stand corrected from my master, our official historian, on how all of biblical activities unfolded down through the centuries. Thanks for correcting me, Winky. Now, it's been a great time, no matter whether it's one day or two days, children dressing up in costumes, as you mentioned, going over to the synagogue and reading the book of Esther and making a lot of noise when they mention the name Haman. So it's quite a exciting holiday, holy day, should I say, for the Jewish people when they celebrate the victory over wicked Haman and the possibility of the total annihilation of the Jewish people, correct? Absolutely. The holiday is very festive here. I jokingly say if it's a two-day holiday here in Israel, it's about two and a half weeks long because (laughs) in the schools, Jimmy, uh, the kids uh, get dressed up on the first of the Hebrew month and then they plan uh, shows and uh, parades in some of the larger cities, like Cholon in Israel proper. And so it's a great time. But I must also stress that among the observant Jews, there is also the commandment, shall we say, to pass gifts one to another, in which people and families exchange little gifts of food, two types of food at least. So here in Israel, if you remember... You have an awful lot of people walking the streets back and forth with these little packages or shopping carts filled with stuff to give to their neighbors, friends, and family. And then you're also supposed to give a special charity on the day, because it says in the book of Esther, and gifts to those that are poor in the next to the last chapter. And so uh, it also has like a community bonding element, if I could say, uh, which also indicates that it's not only religion, but it's also community and nation identity that this holiday has a meaning for. Well, thank you so very much for that great picturesque report on how the 
very, very special holy day of Victorious Day Purim celebrated by the Jewish people in Israel. Well, let me move to another topic altogether. About a week ago now, there was an announcement from the White House and from the Secretary of State's office there at the Department of the Secretary of State uh, that they were going to move the U.S. Embassy, at least temporarily, into the U.S. Consulate there in Jerusalem, and they're going to do it on May the 14th. That's great in the significance of the movement, but it's a great news for the Jewish people, isn't it? Well, Jimmy, you probably still have the recording. I think when we last discussed it, I uh, suggested that all they have to do is change the name on the consulate from consulate to embassy. And they're doing it about halfway. In other words, in one part of the consulate, which is in the uh, South Jerusalem neighborhood, which deals mostly with the consular and visa and passport uh, uh, affairs uh, of what the consulate does, they will have a, as you said, a temporary office for the uh, ambassador to sit to begin to work in Jerusalem. However, the economic and political uh, section of the consulate, which exists on Agron Street in the center of Jerusalem, will continue to operate as it has for the past 70 years, which is completely independent of the embassy. Um, I also think I suggested that they that part of it could move to Ramallah if they want to keep a channel open to the Palestinian Authority. But in any case, we're very happy. We're very honored that the decision was made to speed up the process. I hope things go well, both for the new ambassador, uh, who's finishing about a year here now, if I'm not mistaken, and the rest of his staff from the embassy who will begin to work in Jerusalem. Well, it's pretty significant as well that that move is going to take place on May the 14th in this year, the 70th birthday of the Jewish State of Israel. Uh, That was 70 years ago when Ben-Gurion announced to the world there was going to be a Jewish state among all the nations of the world. So that's significant, isn't it? It's significant, Jimmy, and I'm sure Mr. Netanyahu, I hope, will stress and emphasize the point. It was President Truman that took about less than half an hour to make a decision when he got the word to recognize uh, the state of Israel. That signified at the time that the United States, even 70 years ago, was out in the forefront and number one in support of the nascent Jewish state that was arising, despite the fact that Arabs had already begun attacking uh, on the morrow of the partition resolution in uh, the end of November. And I think Mr. Trump is uh, fulfilling his promise and fulfilling the role of the United States, which unfortunately, I think, Some elements within the political establishment and the bureaucratic establishment are trying to uh, drag their feet on the issue. I'm glad that Mr. Trump is leading instead of being led. I've also heard that the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu, has invited President Trump to come to Israel on May the 14th and inaugurate the opening of the embassy in the city of Jerusalem. That'd be a great story. We'll stay on top of it, keep you posted as to what is going to develop. One final question for you, Winky, if you will. That ambassador from the United States to Israel, David Freeman, you were just speaking of him a moment ago, uh, I understand that he's made a statement or actually a warning. If they start to evacuate the Jewish settlements, there could be a civil war. What would your comments be on the statement by the U.S. ambassador? Well, of course, the possibility exists. But I'd like to stress to you and our listeners 
the hypocrisy in the uh, liberal press here in Israel and other places that disparagingly reported on his remark as if he was saying something that they themselves hadn't said for decades or reported on and making it seem as if he was interfering in Israeli politics. He was making an observation which anybody with half a brain (laughs) would have made. The possibility does exist. In fact, one of the threats against those who opposed the disengagement, if you remember Jimmy, in uh, 2005, was, oh, they're going to start a civil war. They're going to demonstrate violently. Then it was okay for them to raise it. But when Mr. Friedman simply mentions it as part of an analysis, they get all upset. And I think that indicates, Jimmy, to you and your listeners, that you must listen to all opinions, but be able to analyze and understand uh, what is going on by listening to the correct people who are giving you the proper insight based not only on politics, but as we, you and I, Jimmy, try to do when you do interview me, we base ourselves on history, on the Bible, on the prophets, and on elements that I think every good-thinking people should be aware of, if only it is brought to his attention. Yes, absolutely. A great historian from the biblical perspective, a good friend of us here on Prophecy Today, and my good friend Winky Madad with that very special report about Purim, the move of the embassy, the United States embassy to Jerusalem, and of course the possibility of a civil war there in Israel. Winky, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again soon down the line. Yes, Jimmy. We invite everybody to come to Israel and enjoy the sights and the sounds and the noise. Thank you so much for that reminder, Winky. We'll talk to you again real soon. Here's another man that always has very important and interesting information for us. His name is Itamar Marcus. He is the director of an organization called Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org. That's their web address. May I suggest you bookmark that. Itamar, I know you've just come through an exciting time of Purim. Chak Sameach to you. Hope you had a great time with you and your family. Yes, we did. Thank you. It's a wonderful and joyous holiday. The Palestinian Mufti. Now, that must be the highest-ranking Islamic cleric that is selected in a part of the Palestinian Authority, has said there will be a disastrous war if the United States Embassy is indeed moved to Jerusalem. United States has announced it. Looks like it's going to happen. Do you think that war is going to come about according to what you're hearing in the Palestinian media? Well, the Palestinian leadership is interested in controlling international political events through the use of terror. They've done this many times. There have been times when they were successful, uh, unfortunately, uh, and they will try to control this through terror as well. Uh, The Mufti, who has been appointed by Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the PA, uh, is also one of those people who will be very interested in having terror in order to prevent um, the, the embassy being moved. Uh, and that's why he's saying this. He's trying to create deterrence and fear that many people will lose their lives. In fact, in fact, unless the United States puts some kind of serious warning to the Palestinian Authority and every person who speaks out like the Mufti uh, has some kind of political punishment, 
there's no doubt the Palestinian Authority will keep inciting terror, and there will be terror attacks. Hopefully they won't be successful. It's going to be a very, very tricky period. It's an important period, but the United States must make the Palestinian Authority realize that expressions like the Mufti will not be accepted, and there must be political repercussions every time a leader of the PA makes a statement like this. Itamar, I was looking at your website, palwatch.org, saw this statement that you had posted there. Palestinian Authority says that Donald Trump is a racist and a Zionist. Now, I would recognize the fact he seems to be a Zionist. According to the true definition of the word, you might want to just mention that definition. But as it relates to a racist and a racist Zionist, I mean, this is another overkill as it relates to an announcement from the Palestinian Authority, is it not? Correct. This is an official in Fatah. He's got a position in Fatah who wrote this article. He's also a regular columnist in the official Palestinian Authority newspaper. He uses horrific hate speech. Uh, He writes that uh, Trump has the, I'm quoting now, complex, impulsive, unbalanced, and mentally unstable personality. And these are the characteristics of the racist personality. Uh, this is what he says about him, and he also says that he was, uh, he calls him a Zionist, because for him a Zionist is a dirty word. He says these are exactly the characteristics of the Zionist personality as well. So for the Palestinian Authority, recognizing Israel's right to exist, which is what a Zionist would be more or less, Recognizing Israel's Zionist to be, recognizing Israel's right to exist means that you're aggressive, rude, controlling, theft, etc. So uh, when it comes to incitement to hatred, incitement to terror, the Palestinian Authority are the leaders in the world. They use it as a political weapon in order to incite terror. You know, I happen to believe that there's no such thing as a true racist from any section of the world, and in particular the Palestinian people. I mean, I believe the Palestinians actually come from Esau, the twin brother to Jacob. Jacob becomes the Jewish people. Esau becomes, ultimately, as you trace through history, the Palestinian people. Having said that, the reason I say there's no such thing as a racist, when you go back to the book of Genesis and chapter 9, which... Genesis 6, 7, and 8 would be the record of the flood. Chapter 9, Noah and his boys after the flood, and they started repopulating the earth, and they were all of one race and the human race. So I I don't see the racist aspect of it, but it's not a bad term to be called a Zionist as it relates to the Jewish state of Israel, does it? Well, absolutely not. Every every, uh, Israeli is proud to be called a Zionist, and millions, tens of millions of American Christians uh, also consider themselves Zionists, as I know, uh, because they believe in Israel's right to exist, and uh, uh, they believe in the Jewish people's right to, to statehood, and that is really more or less a definition of Zionism. Uh, so uh, many, most people who are Zionists are also proud Zionists. From the Palestinian perspective, Zionism is a negative term, and they use it as a, as a derogatory term. In terms of racism, I would just point out that, that if there are anyone who's racist in this conflict, it's the Palestinian Authority, when they teach their children that Jews are descendants of monkeys and pigs because of our ethnicity. When, when the Mahmoud al-Abbas, who's the, um, who is the head of the Sharia courts and, and Abbas's advisor on religion, goes on TV and said that the Jews are connected with Satan and the devils, uh, then those are the racists. The Palestinian Authority has been 
uh, one of the, the most vile and racist use of expression that you can imagine directed at Jews and Israelis, pure, pure racism. Let me take another direction, if you will, Edmar, as we conclude our conversation. Some Palestinian official says that uh, they consider all of Israel one big settlement. In other words, it's not only in Judea and Samaria and in the Gaza Strip area, etc., but all of Israel, a Jewish settlement, thus they want to evacuate all of them. Boy, that's a, a call for incitement in war itself, is it not? It's absolutely true, but you should know it's not just one individual. The entire Palestinian youth population is being brought up with that message in their school books. Uh, we're just completing now a review of the 2017 school books that came out. We don't see the word Israel ever mentioned. Everything about Israel is called the Zionist occupation, the evil occupation, the barbaric occupation. They don't mention the word Israel, and they're talking in the all of Israel, not just Judea and Samaria, all of Israel is referred to as an occupation, uh, which means it's all illegal, which means it's all a settlement. And this is how Palestinian children are being brought up, which, of course, is the ingredient to having very angry children, very hateful children, and children who the Palestinian Authority will depend on to commit terror for many, many years to come, which is why they educate them this way. So yes, you have individuals who call Israel a settlement, and you've got all of Palestinian children being brought up with that identical message. And that, I believe, would be a precursor, actually, to what the Palestinian people would like to do. According to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 35, wipe Israel off the face of the earth, and then steal all of their land, make it a part of their state called Palestine. Dear friends, that's why we have often on this broadcast Itamar Marcus, who heads up Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org. That's their address on the web. Check it out. You need to bookmark it. And Itamar, it's a joy to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much for allowing us to come together to explain these very important issues to our friends listening in. Okay, thanks very much, and nice talking to you as always. Now I would like to introduce a brand new broadcast partner. You might remember last week we talked for our final time, at least temporarily, with Dr. Rob Congdon. Rob, because of medical reasons with his wife and himself, is going to have to take a leave of absence from our broadcast duties for him. So he recommended a man, John Rood, who is actually a man who's lived in Brussels, Belgium, for the last 21 years, pastored a church there, but is on top of what is happening in the European Union. John, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for being available, my good friend. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. You know, it's so unique that you have pastored a church there in Brussels, Belgium, with that being the European Union headquarters. Let's take a moment, and can you tell us why it is that European headquarters is located in Brussels? Why in the world the EU has decided to do that? Well, that's actually a very interesting question and quite important. Uh, historically, Belgium has been geographically between all the major powers, France, Germany, United Kingdom. Uh, Belgium has been the battleground of Europe, World War One, World War Two, Battle of the Bulge, Napoleon, the Battle of Waterloo. And when the EU began, uh, the very beginnings back with the Schuman Declaration in 1950, which was the agreement between France and Germany 
to uh, jointly control their coal and steel industry, they needed a neutral location. Then the Treaty of Rome in 1957 uh, called for more formal integration, and so just out of being neutral and seen as a political lightweight, uh, Belgium and Brussels was chosen. But because of the disagreement of member nations to ever come to a conclusion and to agree on another place, uh, just by uh, stealth, Brussels grew and grew and became an enormous uh, work within Europe right now as the de facto capital of Europe. Well, it's interesting that you've had the privilege of living there for 21 years, and we're going to pick your brain as it relates to Brussels, as we have you, John, come to these broadcast microphones for the purpose of giving us insight into how the European Union may well be evolving into the revived Roman Empire. Talk to us about one more general statement The term empire is used, I just used it a moment ago, it's used often by EU leaders. Is that normal, or is that a part of the process of getting to the revival of the old Roman Empire? Well, that's precisely what's happening. There have been clues and statements and uh, operations which point to an identification with the ancient Roman Empire. Jose Manuel Barroso came out a few years ago, the EU Commission president, with a statement, I like to compare the EU creation as an organization of an empire. We have the dimension of an empire. When the Treaty of Rome was signed in 1957, they said, today we are all Romans. And so this is prophetically very important because it is this progression of world empires, which we're familiar with from Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's image. Therefore, we have a culmination of the uh, legs of iron, which signify the ancient Roman Empire, but then we have the feet and the toes of what would be a revived Roman Empire and the eventual uh, ten-nation confederation by the Antichrist. So there is a very strong identification with the ancient Roman Empire and many, many reasons why today's European Union is a uh, equates to the extension or the revived Roman Empire spoken of in Daniel and Revelation. One of the things we know about the European Union is Brexit, and for those maybe hearing that term for the very first time, I don't see how that would be possible, but Brexit would be the United Kingdom withdrawing from the European Union and becoming an independent nation away from uh, this coalition of nations, 28 member states actually with them still involved. Is uh, Brexit pretty important as it relates to what's going on in Europe and ultimately that revival of the Roman Empire? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Today's European Union is very important to to monitor the inner workings of the governments and the formation of what is essentially a super-state. But as we see in Daniel and Revelation, we're looking for an eventual ten-nation confederation. So... The operation of today's European Union in terms of member states leaving and and the fissures and the cracks, the pressures that are there, absolutely enormous. Uh, You can't imagine the pressures which equate to the iron and clay scenario that we have in Daniel. So Brexit is one of the first 
major situations where a a major actual member of the EU would be set up to leave. And this has never been done. So there is uh, no precedent. And you would think in terms of a, uh, the call, for example, Tony Blair has come out and said that we should uh, have a rationale to keep the U.K. in today's European Union. But their response is not one that is actually meditating on that type of approach. They basically, the EU hierarchy basically wants to make the United Kingdom a bad example uh, because they're in an existential crisis. And so the pattern is really to uh, act defensively, and there's an internal reform uh, is not the interest of today's European Union. But we see, therefore, the possibility of a breakdown after more than 50 years of European integration. Now we're into a phase which is brand new of disintegration. And so eventually we will have 10 member nations in a confederation, which is the power base of the Antichrist. And is exactly what the Bible calls for, the biblical scenario for what's going to happen in the future. Well, we ask John Rood to come along and join us as a broadcast partner. He fills in for Dr. Rob Congdon, and in fact, he does the same thing. We talk politics, and then we talk prophecy. I like that, John. Thank you so very much. We'll have another conversation real soon. Thank you, sir. Look forward to our next time. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll have a conversation with David James, our weekly conversation. We're going to focus on Christians and the Jewish feast. Should Christians be involved in observing these Jewish feasts? That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm here in Patsmouth, Nebraska. This is our location for our temporary studios during the broadcast today, nationwide, worldwide, in fact, from here in Nebraska. But we're here at Plattsmouth because we'll have ministry at the First Baptist Church all day Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. If you're in the area, the pastor of the church, Raymond Wicks, invites you to come join us as we study the prophetic word of God. That's the First Baptist Church, Plattsmouth, Nebraska. Come, let's study God's Word and understand the end times. Well, I'd like you to go to my website after the broadcast. ProphecyToday.com is the location. On the home page on the left-hand side, if you'll scroll down, you'll find my poll question. Now, here is the question. With the Jewish Holy Day of Purim just recently celebrated by the Jewish people, it brings to mind the question, should Christians observe the Jewish Holy Days, or are they only for the Jewish people? That's the question. Please answer my poll question. We'd love to have your understanding of what these Jewish feast days are all about. And while at the website, prophecytoday.com, may I suggest that you go over to Joshua Travel so you can find out about our tours. I believe we have six tours that will be taking you to the lands of the Bible, some only to Israel and then Israel and Jordan to see Petra. 
couple of tours going on over then to Turkey, to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and of course they'll go into Rome after that. Remember, Rome is the next most important prophetic city as you look at God's prophetic word for the end times. You can find out all you need to know, the dates, the prices, and the itineraries for all of these tours that we're taking this year. Love to have you come and go with us. The address, joshuatravelprophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. Yes, you can mark your clock. It's that time of the week for us to have our conversation together discussing an issue that the body of Christ, the church, needs to have a biblical understanding of for our daily walk. And we're going to be talking this time, should Christians celebrate the Jewish holy days? Now, let me remind everybody, we have just completed the two days of Purim. Well, it's one day, and you remember what Winky Madad had to say, and then there's the second day for some parts of the Jewish state of Israel. And so that's what we're going to bring to the table with that background. This week, of course, David, as I've just mentioned, celebrated was the Feast of Purim, a victory over a villain who wanted to totally annihilate uh, the Jewish people back some 2,500 years ago. Now, we've discussed it on the program, but I would like for you to focus on a trend for some Christians to observe all of the Jewish feast days. Yes, this has been a trend that has actually begun maybe 50 or 60 years ago, but I would say that it's gained a lot of traction, especially in the last 20 years, and it's primarily being promoted by two groups. Uh, One would be known as Messianic Jews, and then the others would be the Hebrew Roots Movement, and the two groups don't necessarily like to identify with one another, but these are an attempt to bring Christians into the observance of the Holy Days, and in some cases more than just that. In this conversation, David, let's take a moment and talk about the Feast of God, the ones that God gave through Moses to the Jewish people there in Leviticus, and just briefly remind everybody what they were and what was their purpose. Sure. Well, the first three occur in the spring, in the first month of the Jewish year, which God established in Exodus chapter 12. That would be Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And of course, Passover was connected with the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. Uh, the unleavened bread would probably symbolize uh, a holy walk for those who had been delivered. And then first fruits would point to, we would understand now uh, that they would point to the resurrection of Christ. So the first three, point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Then you have Pentecost, which is late spring, early summer, and that is when the Holy Spirit came, so there's certainly significance there. Then you have the fall feasts, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles in the seventh month of the year, and these point to the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. So they were actually a tutorial for the Jewish people, uh, but they also helped them in their walk with the Lord. And as you mentioned, there's also Purim, but that was not established in the Law of Moses. That was almost a thousand years later when that came into existence. And then Hanukkah, uh, which came into existence during the time between the Testaments related to deliverance uh, by the Maccabees and the cleansing of the Temple. David, earlier you mentioned Messianic Judaism and the Hebrew Roots Movement. Can you take a moment and explain to our listeners what these are? 
Well, Messianic Judaism, as I said earlier, the two groups would tend to not want to identify with one another as being and being two completely separate things. I would look at it a little bit differently, that they're actually along a spectrum. On the one hand, you have Messianic Jews. These would be ethnic Jews who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and therefore they identify as Messianic in that way. And many of them just enjoy celebrating the feasts of Israel in connection with their ethnic identity as Jews. On the other hand, the very other end of the spectrum would be the Hebrew Roots Movement, which I would say is a Judaizing movement, uh, very much like what Paul was fighting in Galatians. And as you go further and further along the spectrum, you have them saying that not only uh, is it good or helpful to observe the feast, that it's actually an ongoing requirement, as well as observation of the Sabbath. Some would say you also need to maintain the dietary laws. And then when you get to the most extreme, some would say that the Apostle Paul was actually a heretic and invented a new religion. And uh, at the very, very end, there would be those who would even deny the deity of Christ. You know, for 26 years, Judy and I have been living in Jerusalem, and we've been confronted with the term Messianic Jews. And even when we returned here to the United States permanently, uh, this has still been a part of the vocabulary we hear out of the Jewish community. But is this a biblical way for ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus Christ to self-identify, or is this a problem according to the Word of God, David? Well, I personally, you know, I'm, I don't have a vendetta, and I, I, you know, I'm not on a crusade against this, but I do think it is a problem. I think it's, for one thing, it's confusing to people in the Church, and uh, I also think that, biblically, the problem is found in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, for those who are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man. Now, of course, we don't lose our ethnic identity, but we do change our religious identity. So for you and I, for example, who are ethnically Gentile, uh, religiously in the eyes of God, when we trust in Christ, we are no longer Gentiles, but we are Christians. And I would say that the same thing is true of those who are ethnic Jews. Up to the time of Pentecost, you had believing Jews and you had believing Gentiles who made up the people of God. But on the day of Pentecost, when the Church was born, you have a third and new people of God that will exist until the time of the rapture, and then during the tribulation period, people who come to Christ will not be Christians because they will not be baptized into the body of Christ. We return to an Old Testament-like era, and so once again you have believing Jews and Gentiles. So I think it's important to recognize this, and I don't think it's helpful to call their pastors rabbis, and, and so I think we just need to be as biblical as possible as we're thinking through this. I would very much agree with what you have just said. And you and I both are aware of the fact that there was a transitional period of time from Judaism to Christianity there in the first century concerning the way God was dealing with the world. So how important is it for Christians, in your opinion, David, to be aware of their Jewish roots of their faith? Well, I guess it depends on what we mean by Jewish roots, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But we certainly understand the New Testament, and we understand God's plan for the Church in light of what He revealed in the Old Testament. So even though the Church began on the day of Pentecost, God had thousands of years of revelation where He was 
actually taking us to the point to bring the Messiah into the world. And so we certainly need to understand that. Another thing that's extremely important that we've discussed before are the four covenants that God made with his people, the unconditional eternal covenants, being the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And we know that God told Abraham in the seventh of the promises that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. So we understand the connection that we are saved by grace through faith, just as Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, where it says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, and then Paul refers to this as well. So there is a continuity, but we also need to understand the distinctions or we will become completely confused about God's program. So David, as we consider the claims of those who say we should return to our Jewish or our Hebrew roots from a biblical perspective, was the early church actually Jewish in its practice and worship? Well, this is a very interesting question. As I was working through my course, God's Plan Through the Ages, and developing it over the last 16 years, something occurred to me uh, a number of years ago that I had never really thought about before, and that was this. If you look at the book of Acts and Paul's travels, as he uh, traveled in Asia Minor and Southern Europe, all the places where Paul went, the first place he went was the synagogue. And in each place, there were some Jews who came to faith in Christ. So that tells us that the founding members of all the churches that Paul planted, who was, by the way, a Jew of the Jews, Hebrew of the Hebrews, very much connected with his ethnic identity. And so as he taught them, these first believers, they would have become the elders, the initial leaders in these churches made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But what we find is, as you look at the letters that Paul wrote, to all the churches that he planted, if you had only those, you would know almost nothing about the law of Moses. You would know almost nothing about Jewish worship. You would know almost nothing about a lifestyle connected with Jewish identity. So that tells me if you have a teacher who is fully Jewish, a church planter, an evangelist, and all your church leaders are ethnic Jews, but you don't see anything about this, that tells me that they learned from Paul right from the very beginning that God was doing something new. Here's the point to which we always return, David. It's the issue or the foundation for how we look at the Word of God and, and basically how we come down to how we understand the Scriptures based on our method of interpretation. Well, that's right. You know, we we always do talk about this, but I don't think we can say it often enough, especially in today's theological climate and the lack of good Bible teaching in many cases, even from our pulpits and in our Bible schools and seminaries in some cases. So we use what we call a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation or a hermeneutic. And what that leads to is what we frequently talk about, and that is dispensational theology, which understands that God does different things in different ways at different times in history as he moves his program forward. And this whole issue we've been talking about today goes directly to dispensational distinctives, that there are two peoples of God that have different functions in uh, his program. Prior to Pentecost, and from Abraham to Pentecost, he was working calling out a people for himself. Then from Pentecost to the rapture, a different group of people, we will be joined together in the millennium 
millennial reign of Christ, but we, the Church, will function as the bride of Christ, Israel will function as a kingdom of priests, and we will have a ministry to the Gentile nations in the world. So it's so important that we understand it in this way, in my view. I would agree. It's a very important conversation that we have just had together with David James. If you didn't quite understand all of it, may I suggest you go back and listen to what David and I said together in this conversation. You can do that by going to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, and there you'll have all the interviews that we had on the broadcast today, in particular the one that David and I had about our roots in the Judaistic activities of the peoples of God, and then how we should celebrate or interact with them today. David, great conversation, great information, buddy. Appreciate it. We'll have another one next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when I come back, I'm going to take all that we've discussed with our broadcast partners. I'm going to pull it together, and we're going to take a look at the book, The Word of God, and see what it says about the end-time prophecies that the Lord gave us so we could understand the times in which we're living. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had outstanding reports from our broadcast partners across the world with the purpose of coming to these broadcast tables, information in hand to talk about current events in light of 
biblical prophecy. I hope you did not miss any of the conversations. Each of my broadcast partners had great reports, information that would help you better understand the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word and how the end times will unfold. If you did miss any of the conversations, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, go to Prophecy Today Radio Network, PTRN, and you can listen to all the conversations, maybe because you missed one, maybe because you need more information. But when you finish listening, call a friend or text a friend and tell them that they need to hear what my broadcast partners brought to the table. And while at the website, prophecytoday.com, please answer my poll question. We'd love to have your understanding of what these Jewish feast days are all about. Again, that location, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Let me give you a prophetic perspective on the news today in light of biblical prophecy as I remind you about what each of the broadcast partners brought to the table. Ken Timmerman on the Catbird Seed in Washington, D.C., talked about Russia's Vladimir Putin unveiling invincible nuclear weapons to this world. Now, Ken and I talked about, was this a campaign ploy that he was using since the presidential election in Russia comes up in a couple of weeks? Or is it a part of an end-time scenario found in the Word of God? And I'm talking about, of course, Ezekiel chapter 38, where Russia mentioned as Magog in the passage, will be the leader of a coalition of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. With invincible nuclear weapons, it puts Russia in a powerful position to accomplish the prophecy that is foretold in Ezekiel chapter 38. We went to David Dolan for his Middle East news update, Of course, now we had news about a week old that the United States is going to move their embassy from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. As we went on the air last week for the broadcast, we had just received that news. I wanted David to describe the embassy there in Jerusalem, or what will be. It's presently the consulate for the United States. But this is a major move as it relates to the United States and their relationship with Israel. Remember, Jerusalem is the center of the earth. That's Ezekiel 5.5. And it's the location where God has chosen to dwell among his people forever. That's Psalm 132 verses 13 and 14. You need to understand Jerusalem is key in the end-time scenario that is found in God's Word, but not only is it the center of the earth, the location the Lord has chosen to dwell among His people forever, but it's going to be the most controversial city in the end times. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2 says, It will be a cup of trembling. That's apocalyptic literature, meaning it will be a very controversial city. And with this announcement about the movement of the U.S. Embassy into Jerusalem, you can better understand the controversy surrounding this city. Winky Madad talked a bit about the movement of the Embassy to Jerusalem, but also we rehearsed Purim. 
a special Jewish holy day, and it's a day of celebration for the Jewish people. They celebrate a victory over the wicked Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews. That was 2,500 years ago. The book of Esther recorded that incident at that time in history, but helps us to look to the future, understanding what's going to happen to the Jewish people at the time of the end as well. Edomar Marcus, he heads up Palestinian Media Watch. We talked about the Palestinian official who said if they move the embassy into Jerusalem, it will bring about a disastrous war. The Palestinian people are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 35, where it says they will rise up in the last days to kill the Jewish people and then take their land. And if indeed they're going to start with Jerusalem, that'll be the center of the conflict early on in the tribulation period. But I've read the last chapter. Obadiah says the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will not be resolved until the return of Jesus Christ. We had a brand new broadcast partner, John Rood. He joined us to replace Dr. Rob Congdon, who has some medical problems and had to take a leave of absence. John did an excellent job. He lived over 20 years in Brussels, Belgium, and I asked him why Brussels had been chosen to be the political capital for the European Union today, and of course the European Union, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. David James came to these microphones for the purpose of having our weekly conversation. We were talking about Christians who observe the Jewish feast days and the Jewish holy days. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord took two people, the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and made them one man, and that would be Christians a Jew or a Gentile, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, becomes a Christian. That's key to your understanding of God's plan for both of these different peoples. The Jews have a future with God, and as well, the church, the bride of Christ, will have a relationship with Jesus forever. There are two different operations. You need to study God's Word to understand that principle. Well, as I've rehearsed for you the conversations that I had with our broadcast partners this week, you can understand that each and every one of the events, the current events that we covered, are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy in light of the prophetic Word of God. That's what the banner over my website says, looking at current events in light of Bible prophecy. That's our ministry to alert you to the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say the soon coming, I'm referring to the rapture, when Jesus calls us up to be with him in the heavenlies forever. And by the way, dear friends, that rapture could happen at any moment, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 